Hello, my name's Andre Lomblay. I'm the editor of The Ham and High. Each week on this podcast, we'll be bringing you an interview with a guest with strong links to North London, where we'll discuss their lives, careers and love of the area. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe, like and leave a glowing review wherever you get your podcasts. This summer marks 25 years since the Battle of Britpop, when Blur and Oasis hit the national headlines by going head to head for the number one spot. North London, and Camden in particular, was at the heart of the scene. Joining us on the Haven High podcast this week is Matt Everett. Matt will be a familiar voice to listeners of BBC Six Music, but back then he was right in the thick of things as drummer with the band Menswear. So here he is, Matt Everett. So, Matt Everett, um, thank you very much for joining us on the Habit High podcast. Um, we're here to talk about Britpop. Um, it's obviously the 25th anniversary this year of the, well, of various things, but the Battle of Britpop when Blur and Oasis went head-to-head for number one was one of the kind of seminal moments, and that was in August. Um, so I thought we'd have a chat ahead of that. Um, I moved to Camden in 95, in late 95. Um, but when did you arrive and what did you find when you when you got there? Did I arrive? I was born in the Midlands and I went from the ages of about, I don't know, 17. I would always get the coach, get the megabus from Birmingham to London every weekend I could possibly afford it. And just to hang out in Camden. This was kind of pre-Britpop. This was um, a thing called Scene That Celebrates Itself, I think the enemy called it, which was a sort of loose uh, mix of bands that used to go to an, a nightclub called Syndromes and the Underworld in Camden, and sort of like Lush and Swerve Driver and a very young Blur. Uh, it was sort of a group of bands. It, it wasn't really, you know, a sort of musical scene. It was more like a label for bands at the time to sort of produce music under. And Shoegaze was about, so I used to go down every weekend that I could possibly afford it and I made friends there and used to hang out at the counter. I used to go, I used to, go to gigs um, of bands that I liked and just sort of turn up early and say, I'll carry some equipment for you if you let me into the gig. So Which yeah. was called legging at, the time, legging at the time, wasn't it? I just, I just found myself carrying lots of drum cases uh, around for, you know, bands. And that's kind of how I got to know a lot of people in that kind of world, pre-Britpop. But yeah, I always, I always loved Camden. It's such a fantastic place at the time. So were you, were you playing in bands at the same time? Yeah, but they're all kind of like not very good, sort of early, sort of indie-ish kind of things uh, in Birmingham. It wasn't until I moved down to London when I was 19 that I kind of really ensconced myself properly on a regular basis. Okay, so, so when would that have been? What year was that? Oh, that would have been 19, uh, Modern Life is Rubbish by Blair had just come out. That was the record that changed change anything so 94 yeah so, probably or 90 yeah probably is 94 isn't it yeah. but um okay and so you you moved down what what did you find what was there a scene in camden particularly or was it just certain venues happened to be where they all played um it's where everybody drank as has always been thus and probably you know, will always be to a lesser or greater extent everybody went to certain pubs you went to the falcon which is now gone because that's where you saw bands play you went to the Water Rats, which is still there, and you drunk in the Good Mixer because that's where you could spot Madness and Morrissey. And you went to certain nights at the Underworld. Yeah, it was it was just an interconnected uh, sort of chain of pubs. Then you'd, you'd hopefully maybe see somebody from Chapter House, and that was an incredibly big deal at the time <laughs> for me. Wow, the bass player from Chapter House, crikey! Um, it, it felt it felt a sort of approachable 
because mm. you could just go to a pub and see people there. And traditionally with bands, you saw on top of the pops, you never see them in the pub, would you? You never see Wham in a pub. But then all of a sudden these kind of bands, as I sort of tapped into the indie rock thing, it kind of became something that you could, you could get involved in. And that, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the good mix was a, a strange choice because it, it is just yeah. a proper boozer. There's nothing that particularly says this is going to be the centre of musical activity for the country. It's just a boozer with a bad pool table from memory. Yeah, two, two bad pool tables, but a very good jukebox. That's what I remember, yeah. So that was, um, it's been talked about a lot before, uh, Savage Invest, which was a, an amazing PR company that looked after suede and pulp and later, latterly men's um, they were based around the corner. So they, they'd send journalists to do their interviews in the Good Mixer. And also it was close to where, and I think that band could go there and not be hassled because it was just That's an Irish boozer. Yeah. Or at least quietly hassled by people who knew them, but were they knew, knew the etiquette. Yeah. Hassled by me, but not hassled by, by them. But that all kind of came later. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there were a few labels based in the area as well. So there was a bit of a, a bit of a hub. Um, who, were, who were the, I suppose what, I'm kind of interested in is who were the other characters that were around at the time? There must have been indie bands that were really high profile in Camden, but never quite uh, broke through the other side. That's an interesting question. There, there was a, I remember a band called Orange Deluxe. Um, kind of all these bands would sort of arrive and, and form waves. Spitfire was another one. They sort of arrive and, and form sort of in a sort of n normally a sort of 60s inspired fug of bootcut jeans and sort of, you know, Paisley shirts, and then nothing would really happen. It wouldn't really turn into a into anything that would make a, a dent on the public consciousness past, you know, zone two. And I suppose that's one of the things is that there's always been an indie scene, isn't there? Or kind of since punk, at least, there's always been an indie scene. It just happened that with Britpop, things kind of came together and people noticed outside, outside Camden. Yeah, yeah. I think there was. It's interesting. There's. There's kind of two parts to the Britpop thing in terms of, well, there's a lot of reasons why it happened. Part of it was lots of bands had been working for a very long time and had got very good while no one really noticed. Supergrass had been the Jennifers and they kind of, so when they emerged with their first record, it was like, oh, wow, what an amazing brand new band. They've been going for years. Pulp had been going for decades. Blur had been kind of earning their chops, you know, um, so as soon as the label started, it was the, the Britpop label, the banner, the bands that populated it initially were kind of ready to go. You know, mm. the same can't be said for men's room, lots of bands that followed in the second <laughs> We kind of, it all happened very, very, very quickly for us. And so we weren't really, didn't have the um, structural integrity to- well, let, Yeah, let, <laughs> let's talk about that. So. It, well, firstly, is it true that you formed in the Good Mixer, or is that part of the legend of the? Um, did we? We yeah, more or less. I was I was drafting a couple of my friends knew Johnny and Chris, and said, "Oh, they've got a drummer, but he's rubbish. Do you want to be the drummer?" And I went to one rehearsal with them, and we played about four songs. One of which was Daydreamer, and Stuart, the bass player, as he drove me back, it was in Leytonstone, horrible, smelly rehearsal studio in Leytonstone, but as he drove me back to the tube station, he said, you know, we're going to get signed. And I was like, what? He said, yeah, we're going to get signed. And <laughs> someone that, I mean, I've been in bands since I was 15. That's all you want. You want to get signed. That's the big thing. And I'd struggled and it's, it's, it seemed like an impossible thing. And then you have one rehearsal with a band and they're like, oh yeah, this is it. 
it's just going to happen. And it did. It was that easy. And, it, and once the, the band formed, obviously you became in its way synonymous with Britpop. It was the, it was the label. You were the kind of defining the creation of Britpop, whereas other bands had kind of arrived before that. Did you, uh, did you feel part of the scene? Did you know all the other bands straight away and suddenly it was one big club? Everybody denied being a Britpop band. I think one of the important defining characteristics of a Britpop band is to say that you weren't a Britpop band. Um, we, we sort of snuck in under this, there was a thing called, um, there was the new wave of new wave, then there was the new mod of new mod, which was like this, like, cause we looked like mods, cause we were mods. Um, I think the Melody Maker ran a piece on, on this being a thing, but now all oh, mods, mods back. And that quickly sort of got dismantled and turned into Britpop. Um, and yeah, it, it happened incredibly, incredibly quickly. I have very mixed feelings about, I think it's a good thing. I mean, we, we, we did a couple of rehearsals. We got four songs together. We did our first gig at a place called the Amsham Arms in East London um, under a secret, under a different name because the hype had got that much at that point. <laughs> and there was already five, five, five labels there who wanted to sign us. And See, we, that says something. You had to go under a secret name when you hadn't even released anything. Exactly. But, and then we did a gig following that, a nightclub called Smashing, which was kind of, Britpop's answer to Studio 54. In fact, that's a quite a good analogy. It was Britpop's answer to Studio 54. And we did another four song set there and we got record deals thrown at us, thrown at us. And what's brilliant about that is it sets you on a certain course. And that is, as you say, it kind of epitomizes this idea of, of, of Britpop, the overindulgence, the kind of arrogance and attitude that comes with it being that easy and the you know, the kind of rocket taking off. It's very exciting and we were young and we dressed a certain way and we looked pretty cool. But that also means that you have no idea what it's actually like to really be in a band. Mm. So when things start to go wrong, as I'm sure we'll talk about later, you're not, you're not prepared <laughs> for how difficult it can be. Whereas Pulp and Supergrass and Blur kind of knew that and they'd maybe gone through it a little bit before. I mean, you, you talked a bit there about uh, what Britpop was perceived to be, but I suppose what gets forgotten quite a lot is its art school roots and the fact that it was actually, there was quite a lot of experimental stuff yeah. before things got channeled into being a, a formulaic post-Oasis copy type thing. Yeah, uh, absolutely. absolutely. It's, that's, that's a really astute observation and something we've been talking about a bit when we've been doing, thinking about this reissue that we've been doing and there's... Um, the art school background of pulp is, is woven into exactly who they are. With Blur, it was there as well, although not maybe not explicit in the music, certainly in the attitude. When we started going to um, Smashing, this nightclub, it was populated by really strange characters. Lee Barry used to go down there. It was very much part of the sort of uh, gay vaudeville theatrical art pop side of Soho. You know, it was, it was glitz and glamour and tits and teeth and uh, performance art. There was there was a lot of bands there that did very strange things on 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 stage, and we were kind of part of that. In that we were sort of young and reckless and 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 extravagant and did stupid, you know, threw money into the stage at gigs and mm. things like that. Uh, off the stage. it was, and that all went. Um, Martin Green, who was one of the DJs at Smashing, is is about to put out a compilation uh, album of of like the the early Britpop tracks that come from that that art school oh, okay. it's fascinating because it was a whole part of it that's kind of been 
forgotten about. And it's a really interesting aspect of it. You know, it, it's the aesthetic very, very quickly went from being, how can we be interesting? How can we shock? How can we be provocative? Um, and also it hugely mixed in terms of like, there was lots of girl bands, lots of boy bands, you know, lots of, you know, mm. the, the gender stereotypes of, of, oh, you have to have a, a sound man and a lighting dude technician. No, you don't, you can have anyone to do it. It can be people that have got no experience. It can be boys, girls or whoever. That all went, that, that became steamrolled by the kind of pint in the air. And it became corporate. And, you know, I always just say that at first they were shocking. They were kind of in your face just because yeah. they were so, so direct. But I think, I think as soon as um, Nebworth happened, that became the template and everything had to copy. And uh, the Verve, another good example, because they're a hugely experimental band, but they channeled into what was more, uh, more mainstream following that template. Yeah, yeah. What were, the, what were the characters like when you uh, first met them, either in Smashing or in the Good Mixer? So um, presumably the Gallaghers and Damon Alban would be floating around, certainly Graham Cox and I saw kicking around just because that's where he lived. Yeah. Um, well, Graham was enormously helpful at the start of, um, of Men's Work. He was very good friends with, with Stuart and Chris and Johnny. In fact, Stuart played trumpet with Blur on stage, like oh, really? some of the first big gigs that they did. Um, and provided a floor for Chris and Johnny to crash on in Camden and was really supportive and really helpful. And same for Pulp. Um, all those guys, I don't know whether they took us under, under their wing, but they gave us support slots with them. In Pulp's case, we toured with them. And I don't know whether they thought we were funny or just kind of liked us, but they were incredibly helpful. And then us being the arrogant, fame-crazed dickheads that we were, kind of like, <laughs> oh you know, kind of dismissed their help and kind of became a little bit ungrateful, which is something I feel quite bad for because they're such nice people. But um, Jarvis was always Jarvis. Jarvis was, it was exactly the same now as he was then. Uh, Graham is just as lovely. I think he sort of found himself now, I think for a while. Some people aren't suited to that amount of attention. Mm. He's a musician, first and foremost. Uh, Damon was always a little bit separate from everything didn't really you know oh really uh not not in a standoffish way but but there was there was more of he i think he was a bit more wary i oh, think okay. of a lot of the shenanigans i remember we had a oh we had an album was it a single launch party at Stringfellows of all the awful like postmodern ironic things that we did <laughs> we didn't Which have dancers or any of that but it was still in Stringfellow so I don't think that's enough of an excuse it, it would be unthinkable today yeah it was unthinkable then but I, I think you're sort of trying to mess about with what's the done thing anyway you know, and loads of people turned up and I think sort of Damon dipped in saw it, saw it for what it was and just dipped out again it's like that was he was an observer but of course was that after Country House or before because with their video for that they tapped into the same exactly. thing that would have been before i think i think yeah so there's and it's interesting doing the job i do now you sort of cross paths with a lot of these people and nearly everyone is universally lovely and everyone's got their own if you're like 19 20 21 and you've got a lot, a lot of if you've got money and attention and access to all sorts of stuff and people are telling you, you you're brilliant it's not always the best mm. recipe to be a well-balanced decent individual <laughs> No, well, that's true. I listened the other day to your, um, it's called The First Time, isn't it? With the first yeah, yeah. time with Matt Everett, with um, Liam Gallagher that you recorded last year or the year before. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and it, it, it seems like when you get Liam Gallagher on the right day, he's the most charming, yeah. down-to-earth, relaxed, and obviously he's got this other persona. What were they like in, in the pub in, in 95? Liam was just terrifying. Liam was really genuinely menacing and genuinely... Uh, yeah, you can feel this presence. He'd sort of, he mm. would prowl around the place, you know, backstage at festivals, you wouldn't want to speak to him. Uh, Noel, Noel was really friendly early on, actually. I remember Noel kind of thinking, um, I think we broke his Enemy Award. I think we, we went to some early Enemy Awards in 94 or 95 or something. And we all ended up having a chat with him in the toilets. And I think we, he handed us the statuette. I think we broke it. I think he uh, probably he's probably got more broken Eminem awards probably, than other Eminem. Yeah, I'm sure he's not losing sleep over it. Uh, but I do know that, like back in the day, in like the mid '90s, if I'd see sort of Liam walking down the streets, hmm. it would he would always go like, "All right, menswear." And <laughs> to this day, to this very day, he'll still be like, "All right, menswear," um, which is kind of interesting, and it still yeah. be. You still have that in your head. You read into that to what you feel at the time, don't you? So, uh, well, let's talk just a bit about the, the Battle of Britpop itself and um, then go on to, to menswear and where it went to a certain extent and <laughs> the, the reissue that's coming out. So, um, the again, the legend is that the Good Mixer was the, the place where the Gallaghers and, the, and Blur met and fell out or didn't fall out and uh then there was the setting of the record release dates for country house and roll with it which was no doubt a kind of media contrivance to some degree but also they were having go at each other how what was your take at the time what what did it feel like everybody used to have a this is something that came up when we were talking about the box set because we've done some interviews and stuff for it and like everyone used to have a go at everyone all the time this, this, it, it wasn't an isolate. I mean, obviously it's the big one, but there was a kind of a precedent, um, <laughs> a precedent set. Mm. You know, Damon used to slag off Bobby Gillespie one week and, you know, someone else. Would say, it was like an ongoing thing. You, you, you'd sort of feud w- with other bands a lot. But that one, through the, the, the very, you know, the, the DNA of those bands was so clearly different. I think Graham and Liam and Noel used to get on quite well as far as I remember. But I think Alex and Damon, that's where the kind of friction was, as I remember it. Uh, once again, put a lot of booze and, and, and ego into young people there, like dicks. But um, yeah, there was, you know, that each of those bands, each of them did something so incredibly well that the other one could never do. You know, there is no way that Oasis could, could disassemble, you know, that feeling of Englishness that uh, that we kind of created around ourselves um, as culture at the time, and no one else could have written as self-consciously, as unselfconsciously, and as directly as Oasis did, as Noel did. Yeah, uh, no one could have done that. But they both wrote these amazing songs that hit this consciousness. And I don't know. It's I know there was a certain amount of label machinations. It was terribly exciting, though. It was good. See, it was on the news, wasn't it? It's like it's on the nine o'clock news. Well, that was the thing. And uh, to, to the, the whoever to whoever the um, was in charge of the news desk for the nine o'clock news, good for them for spotting it at the time yeah. because yeah. it kind of made its own press as well. I suppose what I'm slightly interested in is that it was a genuine uh, 
dispute, a genuine, genuine friction. Yeah. But of course, probably other people have kind of rolled their eyes and laughed about it. And it was just one of those feuds that happen between, between people. Yeah, if, if, you're, if you're the kind of, if you're the kind of band, the kind of talent that, that, that gives you the, that, where you have that drive, that thing, you've got that marrying of, of, of skill and ability to songwriting, creativity, and also that, I am going to do this. I'm going to make this. And Noel had that, and Damon had that. They both, to this day, you know, that's, that's one of the things. It's not just talent. It's that absolute fucking vision for being, getting your work out there, being recognised, getting out on that stage in front of hundreds of thousands of people. And if someone else is trying to do it on your patch, that's going to great. It's going to great. I think it's, it's, so yeah, so maybe some of it was the personalities and the fact that bands were so different, but some of it is like, this is my moment. No, this is my moment. This yeah. is, I've been working for this, you know. Of, of course, it's not unique either. You get these kind of disputes in hip hop. You get uh, yeah. YouTube, YouTubers. There's a whole kind of industry around. YouTube? What is this YouTube you're talking about? I've never heard of such a thing. I'll, I'll explain it in another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but yeah, you, you know, there's, there's huge... Um, publicity to be made and money to be made out of it so it's it's all there so so uh you with you guys there was as you said it was a huge rise to prominence to fame the album uh went top 10 didn't it um it went to number 11 what's interesting is these days i think it, it did like was it fifty-five thousand or something like that which these days would be a colossal amount for yeah. a physical record to sell those days nah not so much um yeah with that success, obviously, there was a period of touring. The album came out, did really well. Um, were you based around Camden at that time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were, we were on tour a lot of the time, but we, we were still going into Camden. I think Johnny Johnny wasn't. Um, it's funny as well, when, you, when you're doing it, you're not all, and you're young, you're not thinking about what it's like, what the impact on that it's having to different people. And I don't think any of us really appreciated how hard it was for John, you know, it's, um, he was in the center, front and center all the time. He was on the covers and stuff. And there was a lot of covers. And I think he found it really difficult. I, you know, I was saying some people aren't suited to it. He was very suited to being singer and a front man, but I don't think he was actually suited to people. Mm. asking him all the time for being the singer. And I think he found it really, really difficult. Um, that's, that's something you never really stopped to. Well, there's no training school for it, is there? And, no, no, and no, it all... you well, I was going to say it also, menswear is quite a particular case because it, the success came so quick and the media reaction was really positive to start. But in a way, it became this is the, the, the band that Britpop created, which carried its own, <laughs> <laughs> its own brushes. It was, I mean, we almost became like a punchline. Yeah. Pretty, pretty quickly. And, it's, and that's, that's when coming back to what I was saying initially about bands who've got a history before fame happens. You've kind of, you know what you're doing, you know how to look after each other, you know how to put the walls up, protect yourselves and steam forward, you know, whereas we didn't, we just ended up infighting and bitching and blaming everybody else. And I got sacked and it got really messy for the other guys. And, you know, on the one hand, I kind of love the fact it all happened so quickly. I think like within four months of the first gig, we were signed and had like a three quarters of a million pound publishing deal. 
um, like a few months after that, we'd had a first big single. Yeah, the whole thing start, start to finish was only a couple of years. And the other thing that strikes me is you say you know to look after each other. Do you actually know each other if you've been playing in the band for a few yeah. years? But of course, you hadn't known these guys more than a year before things yeah. started happening. And yeah. that must be difficult. How did the, um, I know you had fallings out with some members, but was it that kind of stark that the, the friction just built up and one day that's that? Um, people look for scapegoat when it's not going properly. You know, and I was one of the various scapegoats that I kind of think was lined up at the time. The manager's shit, he's shit, she's rather <laughs> Um, And so I was in the front line, which is fine because I, I was, you know, I was, I was more focused on having, being in a band, the fun bit of being in a band, which meant we were very good at doing. And the actual working at being in a band, I'd kind of, because it's, if it's, if it's that easy, you think, well, what, why should we rehearse for that extra four hours? Because, <laughs> okay, now we don't need to do that. Yes, you do. You genuinely need to rehearse. And just because that song's finished doesn't mean it should be the next single because there could be something better. So, um, and yeah, we, we did. I mean, I found it pretty hard, you know, to sort of watch it all disappear. And I kind of definitely backed away from the whole thing for a long, 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 long time. Um, you know, but I owe it a lot. I owe it, you know, my kind of career, not just because it was a stepping stone to working in sort of music as a, as a sort of broadcast journalist or whatever, but also I think a lot of what I do is interviewing musicians. And even if you don't know them, if you've done that thing, then when you speak to them, even if it's, you know, Billy Corgan or Damon or Tom York or whatever, you've all had some crossover in your experiences. So I think it's, it's helped no matter, even if, even David Bowie has had like against us pasty at Scratchwood service station at, yeah, at two in the morning after playing a gig in, you know, Dundee to nobody, everyone, no matter how much of a rock legend you are, you've done that. And then if you've done it as well, it's easier to talk about it. Absolutely. And I, I'm one of kind of the lower end of, you know, used to be in bands, but never with any success whatsoever. But you know what it's like to turn up a venue and think, <laughs> is anybody going to turn up here or <laughs> where the fuck's the stage or whatever. But also, yeah. <laughs> did, did you ever see the Prince exhibition at Wembley Arena? Just to uh, digress slightly. A few years ago, there was an exhibition of Prince and it had all his costumes and guitars and everything. You know, and I'm a big fan, so really enjoyed it. But the room that was amazing was there was a room that just had all his flight cases around. And you walked in and you could smell venue or smell flight cases. Yeah. And it was like, Jesus, even Prince does yeah. that or did that. Everybody, I, after, after Men's World, I joined a band called the Montrose Avenue who were great. Mm. Didn't have a lot of success. Did, did some good singles, albums, right? Good luck. Yeah, they hit the charts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool story, yeah. But I remember doing a gig in, is it Penrith, which is the little place near where they filmed With Nell and Eyes. Okay, yeah. Okay, scene. And we're getting there, and we went to the, we opened the door the venue, and there was uh, three people. There was two bar staff, and one girl standing at the bar, and Girl was like, oh, I'm the I'm the local journalist. I've come to review the gig. So we're like, you know what? There's no one here, but we're going to we're going to do this gig, like our lives do. And we played this show. We put everything into it, even though it's completely deserted. 
And afterwards, we went over to go and chat to this girl, and she was like, I've got a confession. I'm not actually the journalist. I'm the journalist's flatmate. She couldn't be bothered to come. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going out with one of the bar staff. <laughs> I'm going out, it's like, oh, great. But everyone's done that. Everyone's yeah. done that. And I think, yeah, that's... Um, it's, you look back on how much fun... I mean, it's, it, it, it's probably the same for you. It's really good fun, that stuff. All of it. It just really is. Do you, do you play at all these days? Sometimes. I've got a kit somewhere. Um, I played at my wedding. I play at other... If my friends get married often, it's like, yeah, let's, 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 sort of do a, let's sort of do a fun band. And I've got... Um, we've got a, uh, there's a band with me, Sean Keaveney, who does the Six Music radio show that I'm part of, and Mark yeah. King, Level 42. And the three of us have got like a rock power trio. And we do like, we'll do like a little sort of charity gig or little things like that so yeah that that's as much as i play these days and if I nothing mean, else if, if it wasn't for menswear you wouldn't have been in a band with a comedian from preston and mark king from level 42 exactly What's it's the all been worth it do you play much at all <laughs> no not at all haven't uh haven't for quite a few years but uh yeah miss it sometimes <laughs> so you've got the, the 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 box set um yeah. i say you how involved have you been with that all of us it's, been, it's one of the things that's been really nice it's not that we i mean we sort of repaired all our friendships more or less over the years because you start to forget about you got that fucking tambourine wrong you ruined my life <laughs> um and it you, you start to think about it more fondly and you start to think what a really amazing thing to have done mm. you know it's 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 an incredible you know i've been we went all around the world you know and so we sort of we've all i've been speaking to chris and johnny loads we've met up we've kind of all been involved in kind of doing the simons and stuart not so much just because of logistics and they've got other things going on um but we've all kind of got together and do it and it's been really lovely it's I think about it very fondly now because it's like, how would you describe it? Men's were, it wasn't the greatest band in the world. You don't put that record on and go, wow, that's the great long lost epic <laughs> record. And every song is, it's not, but what it does represent is a very specific time. And that time, and I think this is why people love the record is a very important time for those people. It was maybe the first, time you got a job, you got a bit of money in your pocket, or the first time you went to uni or college and got a bit of freedom, first time you got smashed, first time you kind of, you know, fooled around with someone or whatever. It's that moment in your life. It's that, that rush, which was what Britpop was about, that sense of anything impossible, we're in charge, it's not the cool people anymore, we are the cool people. Fashion's about us, music's about us, cinema's about us. This is, this is, this is our time. And so that record soundtracked that moment to people, which doesn't necessarily mean it's the greatest record in the world, but it does mean it captured a really, really amazing moment. And that's why I think it kind of stands up. And that's why it's been fun doing it. Absolutely. I, I mean, it, and it had songs as well. Men's, men's wear words, words entirely image. Those songs go into the charts because they were strong songs. And, and yeah, I mean, the, fir the, people first, the first four songs we wrote with the first four singles and they all went top 20. And that's not hype, that's like, if we were absolutely rubbish and they were rubbish, people wouldn't have bought them or people yeah. wouldn't have to go and see it. So well, and they did, because there were plenty of bands around at the time that were doing stuff that didn't, didn't find their success. So just tell me quickly about the box set. Um, what right. is it, what's in it? 
it's uh, beautifully, we've remastered the, um, the original album. We've gone and found all the very old demos that we did, the demos that kind of kicked off in the first place, which are good. Uh, all the B-sides, we've got live tracks. We've got, uh, the second record is a whole story to itself. There was a second Men's Rare record. I helped write the thing and did a, little, a bunch of demos and I got hoofed out. And then they went to go and record this second album. And it went way over budget. They recorded it in like eight different studios all over the place. David Gilmore's studio, Van Morrison's studio. They spent a fortune on... I mean, following the, temp the well-worn template of the Stone Roses and everybody else before. Over the top. Um, and the record company heard it and just went, nah, <laughs> we don't like it. So it only ever came out in Japan and then got deleted. So we've also found all the demos for that and the record. So this is, this is the great long lost record of Britpop. So that's all collected together in this box set with a bunch of new interviews. Steve Lamax done a really brilliant forward for us as well, which is great, which really does sort of, you know, it explains it's about the moment. It was all about this mm -hmm. moment that happened. Uh, some really lovely photos that haven't seen the light of the day before. And yeah, we sort of read all the artwork. We got the original people that did the artwork before to come back on board. And yeah, and Demon Records have done a really lovely job. And it's, it's not, I think, I, have I got a copy of it? There's the first albums coming out as well on Record Store Day on orange vinyl, which is really sweet. I know. Yeah, absolutely. It's over there somewhere, I'll grab it. But, um, so, um, plenty of people joining a socially distanced queue for Record Store Day that day. Exactly. Um, and it's been, it's been really good fun. Also, it's like, it's 25 years. In another 25 years, no one's going to give a fuck. It's not such a problem. <laughs> well, look. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. It'll be even more nostalgic then. Do you, do you, did you find listening back to the original demos that you thought, oh, this is going to be a bit shonky, and then you listen back, you think, Jesus, how did I actually do that? It, there's, yeah, both things. The latter stuff, when we thought we were the greatest band on the planet, is quite patchy. The really, really early stuff is brilliant. Like, the very first demos are great. Uh, before, before we got sort of carried away with the whole thing, when we were just this this kind of gang of suited young lads with good hair and lots of attitudes. We were brilliant. We were really great for the first start of it. You know, we were a great live band and we did some really, really brilliant stuff. So it was lovely hearing those. So, but yeah, the very first three demos, which we did at EMI Studios, um, and they were just there. We knocked them out in a day and it's like, that's what got everybody excited. I always think it's like when you're having a good pool day. If you're playing well at pool, you go into the pub, you win four frames and you think, yeah, I'm on it. And then you get worse. And it's not that you've had two or three pints by then. It's the fact, <laughs> you're, it's the fact you're starting to think about the shot and you're thinking, can I do it? And, once, and with bands and, and with lots of creativity, it's overthinking it afterwards when initially you're just barreling straight into it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm glad it worked. I mean, I don't really, I don't remember relishing how it felt to get booted and the kind of the difficulties that that presented. And I know that the other guys had a lot of trouble getting through it and getting out the other side. There was a lot of pop casualties. I'm kind of happy everyone's okay from our band. A lot of people aren't. Um, but I, I'm kind of glad it happened like that. I, I wouldn't want to have kept on going and then watch the audiences go from like a couple of thousand to thousands, 500, yeah. 12, 10. And then you're like, you know, rather be be that be that firework. 
I think I read a, an interview with Johnny recently where he said, in a way, he wished it had been a bit like Manic Street Preachers intended to do, one album yeah. and then finish. Yeah. And obviously they didn't manage to do that. And, and men's wear almost managed to do almost. that. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, it's difficult to stop though, isn't it, when you're having fun? That, mind yeah. you, there you go. Th- therein is part of the problem with the band. It was difficult to stop when we were having fun. Too much fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think we... Oh, just about come to a natural end. It's just one other question I was going to ask you. I think because we haven't talked that much about the songs of other bands uh, around at the time. What are the what are the few Britpop songs that you hear, whether they're big hits or or smaller, lesser known things that just take you straight back to that time and give you that bit of excitement? Um, that's a good question. Uh, well, 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 I still think still think that cigarettes and alcohols are bit of a work of genius um i love pop scene pop scene which was the the single that blow put out between modern life is rubbish and part life and that was that was the kind of ignition point for everything it was such a brilliant piece of work uh i the long pigs on and on by the long pigs is amazing i love that song they were kind of another band that you know kind of misstepped yeah but also she said obviously it was a huge yeah. I mean, I mean, you also got. I, I remember, remember the Bends by Radiohead coming out at the time, and everyone going, "Yeah, I guess it's all right." And then a couple of years later, you look back and go, "That was an absolute work of genius," and we're idiots because it was pretty obvious the writing was on the wall musically when you got records like that coming around. Um, Smashing, they always used to play Brass in Pocket. Smashing had an amazing amazing selection of DJs. Martin Green, I mentioned before, was kind of one of them. And they used to play such an incredible mix of like odd 60s electronica and jazz and mix it up with the Britpop stuff that was happening in the artist stuff. And they used to play a lot of Brass in Pocket by The Pretenders. That always takes me right back. Because I remember going there very early on and thinking, you don't hear this in clubs. You know, this, is, this isn't a club. I come from where clubs were like either Jesus Jones and the Wonder stuff or they were like John Please Women, Happy Hard, you know, Happy House. You don't get people mixing up genres and doing sort of Anushka Shankar into, you know, Back on the Chain Gang. Um, so I love that. I love that. That takes me back. Um, what about you? That, I mean, there's some common people, obviously, because I was there at Glastonbury when they played that, and that felt like a really important moment. Was it an important moment? I think it was, yeah. Well, it, it did, yeah, it seemed to be, didn't it? It seemed to be a coming together of, well, obviously it was Chance, the fact they were doing it at all, and it was Chance, the fact they were just at that moment with their record. It was Chance, the fact that they had Ease and Wiz in the pocket, which is a Glastonbury album yeah. ready-made, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah no, and, and yeah, fantastic. I think Blur were my kind of big band at the time, and so probably end of the century at the start of that was the yeah. a bit of the anthem for it it was, it was i mean there's also a, there's a load of good stuff that came out as it all went tits up you know this is hardcore it's a great record by pulp uh you know a lot, a lot of the super stuff that came afterwards I mean, it's all pretty like you know white bloke indie bands because there was a lot of them about but you know i like some of the weirder stuff this is hardcore by pulp's really good as well yeah, and I, th- I mean, I, I think Great Escape's underrated because it's seen as a caricature, but certainly Blur, Blur after that was... Oh, my God, what a record. Jesus. Oh, my Lord, yeah. There's some... Um, yeah, they just got better and better and better and better and better, you know. Um, 
What's, the, what's the big emotional climax uh, of 13? What is it? I can't remember now. Um, no Distance Left to Run. No, no, no Distance Left to Run. Oh, God, what a song. Yeah. I think, I think in a way, the, the, there, were, there were quite a few bands like that that could play amazing small gigs, and, but then in arenas, it just seemed like the natural thing yeah. to do, yeah. which was quite unusual at the time. It's, it's, I'm, I'm kind of against... It's very strange watching, watching the, the 90s become the 60s, if you know what I mean. It's become now the kind of... People have <laughs> kids... Because I'm in my 40s, aren't I? So I used to sort of go, oh, it's like a 90s theme party. Like, I used to go to the <laughs> yeah. like, hey, car wash, 70s theme night. You'd be like, really? Do you put on gazelles? And like, the, a... There's a bit of, well, it, no, it wasn't like that. And then you think, oh, maybe it actually was. Maybe the Spice Girls were always on the TV and maybe yeah. it was always Oasis out the radio. Yeah, it's like that a whole I heart the 90s. But they, also, it's very similar because you had like, uh, you had Blue Lines and you had Protection and you had Dummy and you had like uh, all the stuff that Ninja Tune were doing at the time, all these amazing records, mm. which were part of the family. And they, they were very much part of the yeah. part of the landscape. But that's, it, those are gnarlier propositions and they're harder to pigeonhole into a, you know, British <laughs> reunion Jack guitar photo, which is much easier yeah, yeah. than going, yeah, oh, there's this weird collective from Bristol. Can I ask whether, sorry, another question that's slightly separate subject. There seems to be a bit of a hindsight narrative that's built into Britpop about it being a reaction to grunge. And no doubt that's partly true, but it seems to me that's a bit overhyped because the British indie scene kind of kept going through grunge yeah. anyway, and it just got noticed again after the tragedy of Kurt Cobain and after a few bands like Blur really made great records. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't remember it being particularly thought out. I don't think suddenly everyone woke up and snapped their Soundgarden records in two uh, or anything like that. And you look at Reading posters from the time and it's all a mix anyway. It was... You know, I, think, yeah, it's, I think you're right. It's, it's easy to say that in hindsight. Um, it, it goes in waves, doesn't it? It goes in waves. I mean, there was, just like Britpop, there was, there was the sort of upper tier of these grunge artists. And then there was all the druck that followed the terrible pseudo, you know, plaid shirt on the catwalk, awfulness, yeah. just as there was with Britpop. So I think it, it just it run its course. I don't know. I remember listening to In Utro almost as much as I listened to Modern Life is Rubbish. I don't remember it being, um, but it was there. It, it, was, it was nice to have bands like with Pulp, like with Oasis, like with all these bands, singing about things that related directly to you, to, to what you were experiencing about, you know, air cushioned souls on the <laughs> or like being in a shit job, you know, and just wanting to get out. All this, all this stuff. The thing is, the, the, the British. British music has always done that very well. British music is very good at articulating how Britain feels at any one time. It's always been very good at that. America's too big to do that successfully, you know. Um, I, I think Tom Petty does it. Maybe the Foo Fighters do it these days. They're, you know, the big sort of swathing. This is we're an American, but funkadelic parliament. You know, the, those artists that sum up what America is. But there's very few of them because it's very difficult to do. Uh, Dolly Parton. Yeah, that's interesting. Whereas over here, to some degree, you can 
sum up a national mood. Yeah. It's never catch all, but there, there is something behind it, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying life in Bath is like life in Bristol, which is like life in, you know, uh, Liverpool or Middlesbrough. It's not. Mm. But there's a through line, especially when you're younger, through line, you know, between that ages of sort of 15 and, and, and 21, where you were all trying to work out who the hell we are regardless of what your background is. And we're all kind of looking at the future going, what is it going to be like? And a lot of that music does encapsulate that pretty much along with the stupidity and the excitement and the going out. And the booze. And the booze. And, the, and whatever the else. And the everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was talk about getting Mezzo back together again. Uh, there was, there was one point about, I don't know, 10 years ago that, um, that we got offered a slot, a secret slot at Glastonbury and we got together to talk about it and it didn't, everyone hadn't got their shit together at, at that point. And there was still talk about it and there was offers on the table to go and do stuff and bits and pieces. And that sort of surfaced again now because of the reissue. And it's not just about what, it's what the audience are like now. We represent how people felt at that time. Mm. And if you go out and watch us doing it again, you're not the same people. We're not the same people. The songs might be the same, but you don't feel the same way as a person as you did before. So as much as there might be a bit of a, a nostalgic quick hit, I think you're almost undermining the currency of what it was. You know, it yeah. will, you, you will go out and think, oh, this is going to be like a night in 96 or 95 when I saw them at Shepherd's Bush Empire and I had the best night and we got smashed beforehand and I snogged that boy and I snogged that girl and then, you know, it, and I nicked a poster. From, like, it won't be like that. And I'd rather have that thing remain kind of pure at risk of sounding really pretentious about a bad like mental. No, but I think that's fair enough. I mean, the, the blur gigs of recent years in, in Hyde Park, yeah, I've, really, I've really enjoyed their big, their sing-along but it's not, it is a nostalgia. It's a yeah, it, reliving it's, those times. It's very difficult. I think there was, there was talk, I, I'd still, a bit of me would like to do a gig on the roof of the Good Mixer, <laughs> like the Beatles at, um, on Savile Row, unannounced and no one could see us because we'd be on the roof. I'd quite like to do that because I think it would be funny. And I, I, whether we'd all get in a room just to play for the, as you say, for the pleasure of it, I don't know. But a full reunion, I don't think it's going to happen. Thank you so much to Matt for joining us this week. It was great fun to revisit such an exciting time in British music. Follow at Menswear Band on Twitter for the latest on that box set. And make sure you subscribe to the Hammond Hyde podcast to get a new episode every week. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant.